It's a drummer in me. It's incurable. I want to thank uh, Pastor Cyclops, uh, uh, Pastor Mitten, uh, for his ministry. <laughs> his eye offended him, so he tried to cast it out and throw it from him. What were you looking at? Inquiring minds want to know. With God's prayers, your good looks and Devon our way will return uh, next week. I was last night, <laughs> Chad, this is, this is Chad, he's a student of mine, uh, and I, I and Chad and a couple of other people from Bethel, from our world religions class at Bethel College, we went out to uh, check out a world religion experience. We're investigating other religions, other beliefs, and things of that sort, and so we had a, a fairly well-known uh, person in town. Has anyone here ever heard of Elizabeth Clare Prophet? Raise your hand if you've heard of Elizabeth Clare Prophet. Okay, a lot of you know. Uh, what we're talking about. She's sort of the prototypical girl of the New Age. What the New Age movement is about, she just sort of exemplifies in the extreme. And uh, we went to go see her. She was channeling for us the, uh, the angel Uriel and, and some other resurrection angels. And, and we wanted to, uh, you know, find out. We're studying the New Age religion, and this is the best place to, to see it. Have you ever been in, like, it always happens to me in church or someplace where it's utterly inappropriate to laugh and I just gave my students this lecture about no matter what happens, you know, be respectful and dignified. And it was torture. Uh, just uh, holding it in. Chad is sitting next to me. I can blame it all on him because we were in tears. Uh, trying so hard, you know. Uh, the music was some of the worst music I've ever heard in my life. Uh, it, it was just, and her theology was kind of what you'd get if you went to the supermarket and you bought everything in the supermarket and put it into a great big bowl and make a soup, made a soup out of it. She's got everything in there from Buddhism to Krishna to Jesus to some Catholicism and Hinduism. It's just a mishmash, and it was just... And we did pretty good at, at, at keeping it inside until she introduced the, the chakra man. Uh, and uh, at that point, it was tough. Real tough. <laughs> my lip was so purple from just trying to... You know, I thought if I could inflict enough pain on myself, I would be... <laughs> this happens occasionally. When I was a kid, it always happened right during high mass. Uh, it happened last year, my wife and I went to see the Messiah, uh, the Handel's Messiah, that is, and, uh, it, it, <laughs> hi, Jesus, and uh, it, it happened there, we just could not, uh, in the middle of the Messiah, it was, it was terrible, it's always at the worst times, during a Greek exam, it happens, it happens now and then. There's a comical side to the whole thing, and I don't feel bad about, you know, seeing some humor in that. I mean, this is superstition gone wild, superstition gone crazy. I'm not kidding you. They were selling Michael the Archangel's sword. They had swords there, these big machetes. You could buy them for 55 bucks. All sorts of re religious trinkets and all this other kind of stuff. It was just bizarre. But beneath that, beneath some of the humor of it and, and some of just the interesting things that, that were about it, there's also a very serious thing, and that is that there's an incredible spirit of deception that is operative, not just through Elizabeth Clare Prophet, but in this age today. The people that went there were sincere. It was an auditorium full of people who were, you know, normal, rational people. And I look at this stuff, and the students look at this stuff, and we think this is as flaky a thing as I can imagine anything being. And yet these people are following this teaching. They're just absorbed in it, saturated by it. And there's a spirit of deception that just blinds people and causes them to believe things they otherwise wouldn't believe. And for about 300 years, we've in Western culture had to confront, as Christians, we've had to confront a spirit of, of unbelief, a spirit of skepticism, a spirit of agnosticism. But that is no longer the case. The climate has changed. We live in an age that's much closer to where third world countries have been all along. 
an age of superstition. People are, are ready to believe something. They're just looking for something to believe. And as evidence from last night, they'll believe just about anything uh, if they're desperate enough. I guess I'm saying that to, 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 to encourage you in this way. I want to encourage you to, I want to remind you to walk in the awareness that there are people all around you every day who need the Lord. And I want to encourage you to pray for the Lord to open up avenues for you to befriend non-Christians, open up avenues for you to invite them to church, maybe open up avenues for you to share the Lord with them. Because that's where it's at. We're overwhelmed by what God's been doing at Woodland Hills here. It's been unprecedented. It's been uh, amazing. We're overjoyed with it. And many times people will say, other ministers will say, oh, it's a real successful ministry. But for Paul and I, and I, I believe this is what your heartbeat is, is too, the proof of the pudding for a successful ministry isn't the size of a church. It's when all is said and done, whether non-believers are becoming believers. And from that criteria, we're looking down the road towards when the ministry becomes successful, when it starts doing some nitty-gritty kingdom work. The Bible says that God is overjoyed when a sinner comes to repentance. never says that he gives a hoot about whether a church is big or small. That's kind of irrelevant. That's not really that, what's important. What's important is, is the ministry reaching out to the lost? What we really think that God's doing now is, is sort of laying stage one. What we're at here is stage one. I think it maybe is just the beginning of stage one. But stage one is to raise up an army. Raise up an army. Get Christians who are led here, who feel hungry for the vision that we have for this place, hungry to see God move, hungry to save the lost. Bring them together, get them fired up, get them healthy, get them until they know who they are in the Lord. And then stage two is when you begin to reach out and bring in people from the highways and the byways. I just wanted to encourage you in that way. Well, we're continuing in our study on, on prayer. What I'd like to speak about this morning is, is prayer that heals the inner self, prayer that heals the soul, prayer that heals the heart, a prayer of inner healing. The passage that Paul read for you is from Jeremiah 31, where the Lord says to Israel, in the midst of very trying, very disturbing circumstances, he says, Israel, I have loved you with an everlasting love, and therefore I will raise you up, I will rebuild you, and you shall go out with singing and dancing with a harp and the tambourine, joy shall return to you. Why? Because I've loved you with an everlasting love. And that, I'm going to say this morning, is the healing word that we need to hear in a time of healing prayer. Let's pray. Lord, I, I thank you for the way your presence has been here. I thank you, Lord God, for the relaxation that you give to your people, that we can come and uh, we can have paper on the floor, we can have stands all over the place, and no one really is disturbed by that. I thank you, Lord, that we can have fun and celebrate your presence I thank you, Lord God, that we can be ourselves and don't need to put on a costume, whether it's clothing or whether it's just a facade or appearance. Lord God, I thank you that you freed us from that. And I pray, Lord, that your word would go forth here this morning, that I would speak as the oracles of God and that your spirit would be on it. Lord God, let what is said here be far beyond what any uh, human wisdom could concoct. Let it be energized by your spirit, Lord God, and, and bring healing. We need that. On the inner self, Lord God, we need your healing. We ask this in your name. Amen. I've used this analogy before this last summer when I was preaching at the open door, so some of you may recognize it, but I want to use it again because it gets at what I want to communicate this morning. Last year, I was at a uh, family Bible camp. My family and I were at a family Bible camp uh, up north. And um, 
One of the evenings at this Bible camp was a week-long thing. One of the evenings uh, of this, uh, my kids were outside playing. It was about 10, 30, 11 o'clock at night, and they're all playing in the dark. And a lot of the other kids from the camp came and started playing with them. They were around this light post that was right outside of our cabin. They started playing this game. I'm sure you've all played it before. It's called freeze tag. Freeze tag, where you, know, you touch someone and they're frozen. You've got to stay just, you know, you can't move. You're supposed to move an inch because you're frozen. And you know, what you've got to wait is for someone on your side to come and unfreeze you. And they run over and they tap you and they say, unfrozen. But then if you get tapped by the opponent's side, you're frozen again. And you've got to stay there until someone comes along and says, unfrozen. And they were playing this game. It must have been 10, 15 kids were running outside 11 o'clock at night having a blast playing freeze tag. None of the parents wanted to stop it because they were having so much fun. My little Nathan got involved in this. Now, the rest of the kids were about 10, 11, 12 years old. Nathan was, was 6 years old. It wasn't as fast as the other kids, and it wasn't as noticeable as the other kids, but he wanted so badly to play. So he'd run around, and sometimes he'd try to get tagged just on purpose to think that he was a part of things, you know. And at one point, he got touched. He got frozen. But he was sort of on the periphery of where this light would come down, and so he was sort of in the dark. But being a good kid, you know, he, he goes by the rules. He's frozen, and he can't move, so he's not going to go in the light where people can see him. He's frozen out there in the dark. He starts hollering out to everybody, Hey, you guys, I'm frozen. I'm over here. Will someone come and get me? i got to get unfrozen. The kids are all just playing by themselves and having a lot of fun. Over, over a ways, they can't hear them. Well, they're not paying any attention. And he hollers out louder and louder. Hey, you guys, I'm frozen. I can't move. Will someone come and touch me? I, I want to I play again, and I can't play. Will someone come and touch me? Hey. They kept on calling and calling and calling. I'm such a wimp. <laughs> I, I got all choked up looking at my little boy who wants to play the game and no one would play. So. <laughs> so I decided to play freeze tag and I got in the game. <laughs> and I ran over to him and he got a big smile on his face and I go, unfrozen. He just jumps and now he's back in the game playing. Uh, seems to me that a lot of times life is kind of like freeze tag. We get touched in certain ways, sometimes physically, sometimes emotionally, sometimes spiritually. We get froze. We can't move. We cry out for someone to touch us, but there's no one around. We feel like we're in the dark, and we can't move enough to get out of the dark. The young lady I met about 10 years ago now at a church that I was assistant pastor at, she and her husband came in ostensibly for marital counseling. She was an attractive young lady, maybe 25 years old, except for the fact that she was so incredibly skinny. She couldn't have weighed more than 85, 90 pounds. She was so thin, 5 foot 7 or so, and so incredibly thin, she looked like she was going to die. As we began to talk about some of their marriage conflicts, it turned out that their main problem centered around the fact that, I'll call her Tina. Tina had anorexia. I'd never heard of anorexia before. This was a new thing to me. But she had anorexia. She was afraid of food, and she was afraid of getting fat. And I would say, as, as her husband often said, and as many people in her life said, Tina, you're not fat. You're overly thin. You need to put on some weight, and, and you're not going to get fat if you eat. It's okay to eat. And when I saw her, when her husband saw her, when, when friends and other people would see Tina, they'd see this person who was underweight. But when Tina would see Tina, she saw someone that was very fat, someone that was obese. In her mind, someone that was overweight. She looked in the mirror and she said that she sees this chubby person. 
And the story behind the whole thing is that at about the age of 13 or 14, Tina grew up being overweight. She was just like that. That was her body frame. She found out around the ages of 13 or 14 that it wasn't okay to be overweight. That was not a good thing. She became boy conscious and wanted some male attention, and she wouldn't get it. She couldn't get it. Rather, what she got was ridicule and teasing from both the boys and the girls. At about the age of 14, she made a covenant with herself that she was going to change the way she looked. The scars of being rejected, and there was one particular man in this case that really froze her. But the, the wounds that she was receiving and the rejection that she was receiving was so intense that it sort of froze her in this picture of herself. And so to this day, when she looks in the mirror, she doesn't see a 25-year-old underweight woman. She sees a 14-year-old overweight woman. She's frozen in this picture of herself. You know, they say it with the body, that when the body is punctured or pierced or lacerated in a way that, that is life-threatening, when something happens to the body, when the body is touched in a way that it was never created to be touched, the body goes into a state of shock. It just goes into a state of shock. Something's true of the soul as well. When the soul is touched in ways that God never intended the soul to be touched, it goes into a state of shock. When instead of receiving love, it receives hate. And instead of receiving acceptance, it receives indifference. Instead of receiving safety, it lives in danger. It goes into, as it were, a state of paralysis. It freezes. It's like grabbing onto a picture that's, that, that's full of electricity, and you're electrocuted by the picture. You just gaze at it, and it's fr frozen in your mind. And it freezes you. You're paralyzed. It may be something that was very big in your life, a horrendous thing like sexual abuse or being beat up or having your parents killed in a car crash, or it could be something very small that just freezes you in a little way. It could have been a one-time event or it could have been a whole pattern of the way you were raised or the way that your marriage went. It could have been something long ago or it could have been something very recently, but the soul becomes traumatized and it gets frozen. And the rest of your life goes on like always. You mature, you grow, you change in ordinary ways, except in this one area of your life. It's frozen. It's solid. Something happened to the soul. It was touched in a way it was never meant to be touched. A student I knew several years ago was a mature Christian, loved the Lord, godly in a lot of ways, involved in a lot of college ministries. But she had one area of her life she just couldn't control. She was promiscuous. And when the situation was right, there's a button that would be pushed on her. When a man would make an advance on her, she just froze as though she could not say no. And you look a little bit behind the behavior, look behind the moral condemnation of it, and what you'll find is a young person between the ages of 5 and 13 who was frozen in the trauma of sexual abuse. And what was frozen under her mind was the message that if you're ever going to get male attention, it's going to have to be sexual in nature. That was just frozen there. And so in spite of the fact that in every other way she was mature and, and, and developed and an ordinary person, when, it came, when the person pressed the right button in her, boop, the frozen kid came out. She was paralyzed. I knew a man of God, a mature man of God, anointed of God, great guy. But if someone pressed the right button, something happened to him. If, if he got a word of criticism, if someone criticized what he was doing, at all, you know, maybe even a suggestion for change, all of a sudden this man, this mature man of God, became very defensive, very angry, very big, very ragey, very immature. What's going on there? In every other area of his life, he's a 40-year-old man, but in this area, he's a 5-year-old kid, a 5-year-old kid who's shamed and humiliated by his father, and it traumatized him so that if you press the right button, you don't get a 40-year-old minister, you get a 5-year-old kid who's saying, I'm not as bad as you think I am. You know, and what, what, what he hears is not what's being said, but he hears the voice of his father, that you're inadequacy, and you'll, you're inadequate, you'll never measure up, you'll never amount to anything. If you look inside the heart of a person, if, if, if they let you in on it, if they let themselves in on it, you see sometimes frozen areas of our life. 
Behind the manipulative person who's always trying to control, always trying to connive, you look beyond the behavior and you may find that there's a person who at some point in the past was frozen in the trauma of someone abandoning them. And now they believe that if they set anyone free, they'll never come back. So they always need to control. Look, look inside the heart of the overachiever, the person who's never accomplished enough, who's always who's driven, always got to be accomplishing more and more. What you may find is a... A little boy or maybe a little girl or maybe a teenage boy or girl or maybe a young adult boy or girl who's frozen in the fear of failure, frozen from, from some event or from a pattern of being raised, frozen in the fear of, of being inadequate. And so they're constantly trying to prove that they're not what they feel they are in this frozen kid inside of them. Or the perfectionist or the person who's invincible, who never, who never will disclose their emotions, never talks about their feelings, never is open with themselves, always kind of above stuff. Always need, needing to keep things orderly and organized. You may find inside of there a person who's frozen in the fear of things being out of control. Something happened that was just chaos, and they have made a decree that they will never be like that again. But that picture of chaos freezes them, traumatizes them in their heart because they were never created to experience what they experienced. The soul becomes traumatized, becomes paralyzed, becomes electrocuted. The rest of our life goes on like before, but in this area we simply stop growing and it affects our life. We live our lives like, 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 like adults, but we have baby feet. What would it be like to be a grown-up adult, but your feet had stopped growing at the age of three? It, it would cripple you. You'd walk funny. It would affect your whole life. Maybe you'd get used to it, but it would still be there. Or if you grew up in every area, but your, but your head stayed the age of a, of a two-year-old, that would cripple you. You'd look a little strange, too. So it is with the soul. We become traumatized. It affects our, our, every area of our life. It affects the way we feel about ourselves. Having this frozen kid inside. Having this frozen kid inside affects, in a, in a derogatory way, the, the way we can love ourselves, the way we can enjoy our life, the passion that we live life with, the fun that we have in life. It colors everything. It may be a very minor thing that you don't think about hardly ever at all, but it's still there. It affects your relationships. It affects your relationship with God, the way you see God. There's always the voice of this frozen kid crying out, well, someone come and touch me. But from the perspective of that kid, God, you may know theologically that God is loving and gracious and kind, but will you see what you really experience as God is shaming and oppressive and tyrannical? Because that's how you're frozen. And all the theology in the world isn't going to change that. It's deeper than what you think, deeper than your own theology. It affects your relationship with your spouse. It affects your relationship with your kids. It affects your relationship with friends. The kid's crying out in the dark, well, someone come and touch me. And it frees me because I really want to get back in the game of life. But I can't move. Sometimes what we do, in fact, I think normally what we do is we accept this stuff. We just accept it. We feel we have to accept it. It's just the way we are. Yeah, okay, you press this button, I get crazy. You press this button, I get jealous. You press this button, I get gossipy. I get bitter. I get depressed. I know I got these areas in my life, but that's just me. And we just sort of accept it. We think that that's just the way it's going to be. We live our life to some degree, as a footnote to what happened to us in the past. We live our life as an extension of other people in our past, other events in our past, because we never rise above them. In fact, sometimes it can happen that we actually try to make a virtue out of a vice. We look at this kid in the dark crying out for someone to touch him, and we actually begin to embrace that in this sense. We begin to feel sorry for ourselves. It's the worst thing you can ever do, is to start pitying yourself. 
It's a way of getting life for you, a way of getting attention. It's a way of, of you know, saying, look how, how bad it has been. And you stop wanting to ever be healed. You stop wanting to ever be touched. The game looks too, too, uh, too much hard work, and, and you begin to be content in the darkness. It's the worst thing that can ever happen. And you live your life blaming. These are blaming people. You live your life blaming all your problems on mom or blaming all your problems on dad, blaming all your problems on the uncle who did this and the tragedy that happened here and, and then the way you were born or what have you, always blaming but never taking responsibility for, every, for anything. And the result is you never rise above. You never rise above what the past has dictated that you're going to be. What we need to know this morning, folks, is this. What we need to know this morning is that God wants us free. God wants us to be free. He created us to be free, not in bondage. He pursued us throughout history. You read about it in the whole Bible. He pursued us to, for us to be free. And he became a man in Jesus Christ for us to be free. And he died on the cross for us to be free. And he sent forth his Holy Spirit, God Almighty, residing in us, that we might be free. And you are this morning, if you are a believer and have accepted Jesus Christ and have put your trust in him, you are a child of God. And you have a right to be free. Amen. No one has the authority. No one has the right to do something to you, to touch you in such a way that you're going to be frozen the rest of your entire life. No one has that right. You're a child of God. No event has the authority to put you in a gridlock the rest of your life that you'll never get out of. You're a child of God. There's nothing in the past that has the authority or has the power to hold you under its foot your entire lifetime, so you leave your life as a perpetual victim. No one has the right, nothing has the right to do that to you. You're a child of God. And no memory that you have, however painful, however seditious, however, however gross the, the, the memory may be, there is no memory that has the right, that has the power, that has the authority to take a child of God and hold you into oppression and subjection all of your life. It doesn't have that authority. And the enemy of our souls, Satan, who would use these memories and use the past and use things that people do to us and use things maybe that we do to ourselves, faults and failures that we ourselves have done. He uses that to bring us into bondage so we never move in the full victory and power that God has for us. But what I want you to know this morning is that Satan has no right, Satan has no authority, Satan has no power to hold a child of God whom God has set free, whom God has paid the price for. He has no right to hold that child in subjection their entire lives. Amen, you're a child of God. Jesus said, you shall know the truth, and the truth shall set you free. You shall know the truth, and the truth shall set you free. You know what, folks? I'm free this morning, and one of the reasons is because I know the truth. The other one is because I have a cordless mic. <laughs> I can go anywhere I want. Woo! Thank you, Lord. Oh, this, this is great. You shall know the truth, and the truth shall set you free. You know what the truth is? It's God's word. And the truth shall set you free. And the only one, and this is the truth, the only one who has the authority to tell you who you are is the God who created you. The only one who has the authority to tell you what your value is is the God who gives you value. The only one who has the authority to tell you how lovable you are is the, is the Jesus who died for you. The only one who has the authority to tell you what you're worth and what your significance is and what your value is, the only one who has the authority to tell you what you look like is the God who created you and saved you and redeemed you and now dwells within you. And the Bible says, like, God be true and every man a liar. What I want to tell you this morning is 
We need to take a stand. Paul says, for freedom Christ has set us free. Let us stand fast in that freedom. We need to take a stand. A stand that is steadfast and sure and solid. Whereby we say, let God be true and every other voice in my life a liar. Let God be true in every event and every other message I got from every event in my past. Let it be a lie. Let God be true and what the commercials say about me be a lie. Let God be true and what my mom and dad maybe said about it be, let that be a lie. Let God be true and what the enemy of my soul says about me, let it be a lie. The only one who has the authority to tell us who we are is God Almighty. And healing comes, healing comes when we learn to listen to that voice and let it override, let it conquer every other voice in our life. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 10.5, a verse that I, I quote a lot now, but I never quote too much. Paul says that our, the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but they're spiritual to the tearing down of strongholds. And then he tells us what those strongholds are. He says, we come against, and the power of God we come against, every knowledge, every imagination, every memory that sets itself up against Christ. And we tear down the strongholds, the demonic strongholds, that those past messages and those past events have in our life. And then he says, we bring every thought captive unto Jesus Christ. Amen. Bring every thought captive unto Jesus Christ. Every past experience captive unto Jesus Christ. Every past voice captive unto Jesus Christ. Every past memory captive unto Jesus Christ. And when you know the truth and you experience the truth, and this is what healing prayer is all about, the truth shall set you free. Here's the thing. Nathan couldn't unfreeze himself. He was in the shadows there, and you're not allowed to touch yourself and say, okay, I'm unfrozen. When you're frozen, when you're paralyzed, you just can't decide to be unfrozen. You need someone else to touch you. You couldn't just say to Tina, hey, Tina, you know, uh, you really are, are skinny, and you ought to be eating more, so why don't you start eating? And she'd go, oh, oh, I didn't realize that. Okay, thanks. Uh, thanks for the word of encouragement. I'll do it now. You could even say, Tina, you know, your body's the temple of the Holy Ghost, and what you're doing is sin, sin, sin. You ought not to be doing this. You ought to be eating more. Feed yourself. Woman, come on. Get with it. Get with the ticket. It's ungodly for you to be so preoccupied about your body weight. Go ahead, shame her, blow her up, do everything you want, but it's not going to change anything. You just can't decide, oh, okay, I, how silly of me. Okay, I won't be anorexic anymore. I, you know, all right, I apologize. How silly of me to be anorexic. It doesn't work that way, folks. Though a lot of times the way the church approaches people who are severely wounded is, is, is that's kind of the approach we take. Well, you ought not to be doing that. You shouldn't be doing that. You better not be doing that. You better get your act together. You better get your life in line with God right now as though it was all a matter of their free choice. But it doesn't work like that. You just can't touch yourself and decide one day to be unfrozen. You were touched by a hand that you weren't meant to be touched with, and it froze you. And the only way to be unfrozen is to be touched by the hand that you are to be touched with, the hand of Jesus Christ. And that's what unfreezes you. Healing prayer is a prayer of rest. We've been talking about the prayer of rest or the Sabbath prayer for the last several weeks. And this is an aspect of the healing rest of God. And the essence of it, I think, is expressed in Jeremiah chapter 31 where the Lord says to Israel, I have loved you with an everlasting love. I have loved you with an everlasting love. The essence of all the healing that will occur in our life in one way or another is simply hearing that word experiencing that word. I've loved you with a love that never began. That's everlasting. And I've loved you with a love that will never end. I've loved you when you were four and feeling lonely. I was loving you back then, Greg. When you were six and so confused about your family, I, I was loving you then. And hear the Lord talk it to you. 
When you were nine and felt rejected by all your friends and they teased you in the parking lot and you didn't feel like you had a friend in the world, I want you to know, Susie, I loved you. I was loving you back then. When you went through that rejection, Tina, at the age of 14 that so traumatized you and made you the laughing stock of the entire school, I want you to know that I was loving you then. And when at the age of 17 you took matters into your own hands and you tried your best to screw up your life and flush it down the toilet, I was loving you then. And even when you were going on your rampage and doing all sorts of crazy sinful stuff, at the age of 21, I was still loving you. And when you went through your own divorce at the age of 27, I was loving you then. When you lost your child at the age of 38, I was loving you then. And when you die at the age of 79, I'm going to be loving you then. My love never begins and my love never ends. And somehow when we hear that message, so what freezes us in essence is the message that that's not true. Instead of getting that love, we get something very different. But when we allow God to begin to heal us our whole lives, healing begins to take place. Let me try to communicate what I'm getting at this way. See, to be touched, to be unfrozen, you've got to be touched where you are. You can't move to be touched. You've got to be touched where you are. Last, not the year before this last, New Year's Eve, uh, my sister had a New Year's Eve party, and, and, and we were sitting around the house talking. Everyone else had fallen asleep except for me and my sister Debbie, who's here, and, and my sister Anita, who I think is here. And uh, we were sitting around talking. My mom died when I was two. And I, my, my sister, my younger sister was one at the time, but my older sister was nine or ten. And so we often ask her about mom, you know, what was she like? What would life have been like if she would have lived? And, and we play out that kind of scenario. And on New Year's Eve, you know, everyone's kind of sentimental, so you do that kind of stuff. We're talking with her about some things. And I learned something that night that I had never known before. No one had ever told me. But I learned that, that before my mom died, her last words, her very last words were... Make sure you get some new shoes for Greggy. His feet are growing so fast. And she died. And I cried for at least an hour, maybe longer. I just cried. Just knowing that hit something, a profound chord in my being. And just knowing that, that I was that loved at the age of two, does something for me. To know, you know, to think that I was so important to her that her last words were about me, about my shoes. Someone cared about how comfortable my shoes were when I was two years old. And the reason that hit so hard is because somewhere along the line, I didn't get the message when I was two or when I was five that I was at the top of anyone's list, that I was at the forefront of anyone's mind, that I would be anyone, at anyone's deathbed thoughts. I got the opposite kind of message somehow, somewhere along the line. And now I find out that this kid back there was loved. And that does something for me in the present because that kid's still with me. And the messages that that kid got are still with me. And the areas of, of that kid's life that were frozen are still with me. But to be touched, you've got to be touched where you're at. And finding out where I was at back then and having the Lord touch me there begins to unfreeze me now. Are you following me? Sometimes in prayer, I encourage you to do this. To sit with the Lord. I always like to put on some background music and just hear the Lord begin to tell you. I love you with an everlasting love. He's already said it to you. Have him personalize it to you. Can you hear the Lord say that? I love you. And just think about that. This isn't the time to prayer to change, a prayer to do this, a prayer to do this. This isn't the time for that. There's other times for that. This is a time for rest where you just let the Lord pick you up and love you and say, I love you with an everlasting love. All through your life, I've loved you. Sometimes it's helpful to me. Maybe this will happen with you. Be open to it. 
where all in, in a time of rest, in a time of prayer, all of a sudden remember an event of the past that maybe kind of symbolized the pattern that, I, that, that froze me growing up. A memory will come up and I bring it captive unto Jesus Christ. And I let the Lord be the Lord of that memory. Let me give you an example of what I'm talking about. A while ago, I was, I was just spending some time with the Lord, listening to some music, thinking about Jesus, hearing him say how much he loves me. And all of a sudden, I got a memory. It was a memory of, of me standing outside. I was wet, and I was naked, and there was snow all around me. And I was outside of my door in Lansing, Michigan, knocking, crying and screaming to get back in. And my mom had, my stepmother had taken me out of the bathtub. I said I wanted to run away. What kid doesn't say he wants to run away? And she had thrown me out uh, outside. Said, so, "You want to run away? Run away!" And I was out on this step, freezing cold um, and wet. And I all of a sudden remembered that. I hadn't thought of that for a long time, but here it was. Literally a frozen aspect of my life. But there's a message there that froze me on a spiritual level too. And in, in this, as I was thinking about this, saying, "Lord, you know, be the Lord of this. Bring it captive unto you. Redeem it." I all of a sudden turned around, and, and the Lord was walking around the corner of the house. Jesus was walking around the corner of the house. And, and I, you see his eyes, and immediately you know, this guy loves me. This guy really loves me. I'm safe. And all he did is he just come over. It's so simple, but I just saw him coming over. He took off the shawl that he had, and he was now bare-chested. But he put this shawl around me, wrapped me real tight, and all of a sudden, in, in, as I'm thinking about this, I was flooded with warmth. And he just looks at me with these loving eyes, and he picks me up and holds me real close, and all of a sudden, I just feel so dry and so warm and so nice. And I, was, I just asked, I go, I said, are you going to ever throw me out in the cold? And Jesus just said, I would never, ever, ever do that. And I said, good. And see, that's, that, that's being touched. Unfrozen, unfrozen, you're free. You shall know the truth, and the truth shall set you free. And whatever else message you got, you got to know this. This is the truth. You are loved. You're embraced. I died from you before the foundation of the world. You are loved. I encourage you to invite the Lord into the frozen aspects of your life. What are they? Are you used to them? Are you so used to them that maybe you're not even aware of it? Maybe your spouse knows what they are. Maybe your kids know what they are. Maybe we need to ask them. You don't need to go on the rest of your life like that. There is freedom in Christ. And I encourage you to have a time regularly where you just invite the Lord to love you with his everlasting love. Invite him into the darkest recesses of your life. Invite him into the sin-stained areas of your life. Invite him into the, 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 the memories that are too painful to remember. Invite him in and say, Lord, be the Lord of the whole thing. Bring it all captive unto you. And let him do his healing work. And this morning as we dismiss, and maybe that the Lord's moving on you right now to deal with some areas that the enemy's held you in bondage in for, a, for too long of a time. And I encourage you to come forward. There'll be some people up here to pray with you. And uh, I encourage you to do that. Pray with somebody and ask the Lord to just come down and say, unfrozen. Why? Because I love you. Let's stand and close. Lord, for too long the enemy has held your children whom you have purchased, whom you own exclusive rights to, the enemy has held us bondage. And he's held us bondage through a lot of different ways, God. But the effect is always the same, God. We're frozen. We're frozen in an area. Lord, I sense here this morning that there are people who in various ways are frozen. 
I pray, God, in fact, Lord, I sense that we're all frozen in different ways. I know I've got areas to be healed in. Lord, I pray that your melting presence, your searing love would shine down upon us now here this morning when we go home and spend time with you, Lord God. Melt the, the icicles in our heart that paralyze us, Lord, with the heat of your love, God. And this morning, God, I, I, I sense, Lord, that there's someone who needs to be touched by you. Right now, this morning, God, I pray that you pull them forward and enter into prayer that they could be set free. That's what you're about, Lord. That's what we want to be about. Have your way, Lord God, we pray in your name. Amen. God bless you.